Please be seated and turn to Psalm 73. I took this title, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, from a hymn that a man by the name of William Cooper wrote in the 1700s. Some of you know who John Newton was. He wrote Amazing Grace. And William Cooper, John Newton was William Cooper's pastor. William Cooper was in and out of an insane asylum all his life. He struggled, he struggled and struggled and struggled with his mental health, and he struggled with his soul, wondering if he, would really, if he was really a Christian in all of this mess. And John Newton met with him many, many times over years. John Newton was the pastor for many years, and then he moved to another church, and he came back to minister to William Cooper. And I will read to you at the end the the hymn that he wrote. But God does move in mysterious ways. We don't understand all of his movements. We don't understand all of his ways. Sometimes it's just a cloud. I look back at life and I see twists and turns, things I wanted to do, I got to do, things I didn't want to do were stopped short for some reason. Sometimes I never knew why. Other times I found out years later. But God is moving in his providence and sometimes his providence is very dark in our lives. And we don't have light in that time. And that's the case of this psalmist right here. He is struggling. He has a deep struggle. And I know that there are some of you, I'm sure, as all of us, have struggled in some ways like he is right here. And the doubts are just flowing over him about God. Now, he starts the psalm with a conclusion. After all this struggle that he's been through, and it may have been a very long time, we don't know, he came to the conclusion of verse 1. So let's go to verse 1. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Through all that struggle, he finally understood something. He understood that God was good. God is good to you. He's good to me. He's good to Israel. Even through all the doubt and the struggle that he had with that doubt, he came to the conclusion that God was good, that God hadn't forgotten him. He was not abandoned. God didn't set him aside. God was not angry with him. God hadn't forgotten about him. God hadn't put him on the edge of his priority list. God was good to those who are pure in heart. Purity of heart. Righteousness is a heart issue. Purity is a heart issue. It's not 
an activity issue. Activity is a result and a reflection of the heart. If my heart is pure, my actions will follow that way. And he said, God is good. Now let's go to verse 2. Now he begins to tell us about his struggle. But he says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. He had almost fallen off the rock of faith. He was that low. Almost he had given up on God. Almost he had quit trusting in the living God that he knew. He was so close to turning away and turning his back on God. He said, my steps, my steps, when I took a step, it almost caved. My life almost caved in my desire for God, in my trusting God, in my believing in God. He was almost gone. And then he says in verse 3, this is how far gone he described himself. He said, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked or saw the peace of the wicked. He had slipped so far, he wanted to be like them because they seemed to have it all. They had the houses, they had the camels, I thought that the first service. They had the camels, good camels. They had the best camels. They had everything they needed. They had all the food they needed. They didn't seem to have the problems the righteous have. Have you ever thought about that? They don't have heart attacks. <laughs> they don't have cancers. They're wicked, they're arrogant, they love it, and everything just goes well. They live in peace or prosperity. And he said, I came to the place, I was so far gone that I wanted to be just like them. I was envious of what they had. That's how far he was. That's how low he was. And then he goes on in verse 3, he begin, in verse 4, he begins to talk about what the wicked are like, what he sees. Now, we have to understand, his frame of reference is pretty small. We have a bigger frame of reference with Internet and worldwide global communication, and he had a small frame of reference of what he was looking at. But what he saw was, was he, what he saw were wicked people who had a smooth life all the way to when they die. So he says in verse 4, for they, meaning the wicked, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They, they go along in life from birth to death. They're healthy, they're robust, and then all of a sudden, they just, they just die. 
everything is well. They had a good life. They had a wealthy life. They had everything they needed, everything they wanted, and it just came to that end, and they just, they just died. They were just healthy as a horse and moving on, and he said, that's, that's what I see. He said, they don't have any torments before they die. They don't have any trouble. All goes well with them. And he says, I was envious of that. I was envious of that. Then he says in verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. The calamities that come on mankind, they seem to be exempt from. All the burdens that come on us, our financial burdens, our job burdens, our health burdens, our raising children burdens, they don't have any of that. I don't see that in them. Is that because there's favor on them and not on us who are righteous? They are happy and favored. He says then in in verse 6, he says, therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. They walk around arrogant, haughty, thoughtless, no tenderness, little compassion or none. They walk around looking perfect, dressing perfect, everything in place, and they take pride and they put it around their neck like a necklace, like a beautiful diamond necklace that you would want to show off to people. That's how they wear their pride. Look who I am. Look how smart I am. Look how much education I have. Look what kind of job I have. Look at kind of a camel I own. <laughs> what kind of a house I have. Look at how my family does. Look at my kids are growing up and they're good citizens. They have enough money to live on. They're doing well. I must have done a great job raising them. And they wear that pride. Have you ever met somebody? that all they want to do is talk about themselves. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I just don't want to be around anybody like that. That's the bottom line. That is absolutely annoying (laughs) to me. I have other issues. (laughs) Huh, Mark? (laughs) No, No comment. We had a great time in Nepal. We did. We had a great time. In the, it, was a, it was just a, just a super group uh, that went to Nepal. Dan, it looks like he might be recovered. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> He's working on it. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's another story. Okay, let's go on. Verse 7. He says, Their eyes swell out through fatness, 
and their hearts overflow with folly. They're never weak physically, talking about. They're never weak. They're strong. They don't get, a, they don't get emaciated. <laughs> they, you know, they, they, they're just, just healthy people who exercise all the time, look right. You know, they're, they're, they're old like Jerry, and they look like they're 30. Not like Jerry. <laughs> and, and they just, everything's going for them physically. And, you know, they're just, that's how they look through that kind of eyes. Perfect. Perfect. You know, it's how models are. Perfectly structured and beautiful, and that's the way everybody is supposed to look. But we don't. And then it says their hearts overflow with, with follies. They live in a way that the way they think, the way they desire, what comes from the, the core of their being is just nothing. It's, it's, just, it's just folly. But they think it's great. They think it's everything in the world. But it isn't. It's useless. And then he goes on and he says, they scoff and they speak with malice. They speak lofty. They, they threaten with oppression. What, what comes out of their mouth when they speak with malice means they are arrogant in their speech and they speak against the things of God. They speak against religion. They mock what pertains to God. And they mock about retribution in the future. Should you talk to them about the end, they might mock you because you're talking about God's retribution on their lives, God's justice at the end, God them facing the face of God in eternity at the judgment seat. And they mock that. And then they oppress with their mouth. It says, they scoff and speak with malice loftily. They threaten oppression. They speak without restraint. They speak whatever they want to speak. They speak without regard to the commands of God. What comes out of their mouth is oppressive to others. He goes on. He says in verse 9, They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. When it says that they set their mouth against the heavens, it can also be translated, they set their mouth in the heaven. So it has two meanings. When they set their mouth against the heavens, they are speaking against God. That's what we just talked about. When it says they set their mouth in the heavens, they are speaking as if they were God. And they had that authority. 
That's how arrogant and haughty these people are that he knows. And then he goes on to verse 10. He says, Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. God's people, his people, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about Jews now, righteous Jews. He says, Therefore God's people turn to them, just like I did. I was envious of their lifestyle. I wanted what they had. I wanted to be like that so that I would have some kind of favor on my life and wouldn't experience the garbage that I've had to experience. And I was envious of that. And he's, he says, God's people can turn like that. And then he says, and find no fault in them and think that's good. That's the way it should be. Or it, it can also read, uh, instead of finding no fault in them, the waters of a full cup are drained by them. They just, they just they, the, the wicked just drain out the believer. They just suck out the believer toward them. And I can be, I want to be just like them. And then he goes on. You know what's interesting? Mike and I were talking, and Mike made the mention, this is an honest psalm. I like that, I like that conclusion. It's a really honest psalm. This guy has no holds barred here. He is telling us how deep he had slipped on that slippery slope and how bad of a condition he was really in. And then he goes on in verse 11, and he says, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Now I think the they here, it could refer to the wicked. It could refer to them saying, God really doesn't see what I'm doing. He's not that big of a God. And if he does, it doesn't matter. But I think it really means the they is referring to the believers. And that, because that's his question here. His question is, does God really know what these wicked people are doing? Or as he, as there are some people that think today, okay, in our culture, that believe that God could know everything, but he has chosen not to know everything in the future. That's a bunch of garbage. <laughs> but the psalmist is asking the question, does God really know what these people are doing? I mean, these people are living a sinful, debauched life and love it and don't give a rip about anything else. Does God really know that? Does God have the knowledge of that? And if he does, why doesn't he do something about it? Look at all the evil in the world that just goes on and on and on and on. It just continues. It just never stops. And seems in places it just rolls into greater evil and greater evil all over the world. It's just rampant. 
And where is God? Why doesn't he stop it? Why doesn't he stop a bullet from hitting an innocent man? Why? That's what the psalmist is asking. Does God know what's going on here? Does he have any idea? Is he really in control of everything? And that's how low his thinking has gotten. So then he goes in verse 12. I love this verse. He says, Behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. It just, I mean, it just seems to get, they re- increase all the time. Not just, not just money, but they increase in all the favor they seem to have. They, they go through life and at 75 years old or even older, like Jerry, nothing has ever happened to them in their life. They're as healthy as can be. They increase in wealth. They increase, they seem to hold all the stamina physically. They just go on and on and, and, does, and they live arrogantly. And does God see all this? Is God asleep? Then he goes on, verse 13. He says, all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence or in purity. He said, I have lived this holy life for nothing. What value has living a Christian life brought me? What is the value to it? I lost my house. I lost my car. I lost my job. I lost my health. I lost my family. Yada, yada, yada. All along the line, we hear all that. What value is it to being a Christian? He said, that's all in vain. Look how low his thinking is. His thinking is so low that he thinks living his holy life is absolutely useless. And then he says in verse 14, he says, For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. He has something probably physically wrong with him. May not be physical, but could be. And every morning... He's reminded of this. It doesn't go away. I wake up, maybe I get a good night's sleep, and I wake up and know it's the same thing the next day. And he feels like it's this rebuke from God. That God is rebuking me. That's why I'm sick. Or God is rebuking me. That's why I, whatever. And he, re- he said, I'm stricken with this, and every, every morning I wake up reminded of this. It, doesn't, it won't go away. And then he says in verse 15, If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He kept everything in. He didn't tell anybody his doubts. He kept everything to himself. 
And the reason he did is because he did not want anybody else's faith to drift like his. He didn't want anybody else to lose confidence in God because of where he was. He didn't want anybody else to fail to trust God because of his doubts about God. So he said, I didn't say anything. And then he says in verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He said, I wrestled and wrestled and wrestled. I thought and thought and thought. And with every ounce of human reasoning I could come up with, I could not figure what God was about or what was all this great things that happened to the wicked and horrible things that happened to the righteous. He says, I, and it became, a ta- it became a wearisome task. I mean, he was into this so much that it physically affected him, and he got tired of thinking about this. And then the next word is a great word. It's like a but in between in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 3 and verse 4, I think it is. But God, it says there. This is like that. He says, until, I hope you have an until there, it should be, until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. When I went in the very presence of God, that's what he means by the sanctuary. When I went into the presence of God, fell before him, brought all these questions and all this doubt and all this wondering about all that's happening, when I laid that all before God, then God revealed to me something. He revealed to me that he wasn't asleep, he wasn't uninterested, (laughs) he wasn't ignoring the wicked, he wasn't putting them on the back burner, he had a plan. And his plan was what the end would be for the unrighteous, for the sinner. And God revealed to him that plan and what that would be. He says here in verse uh, 18, Truly you, truly God, you set them in slippery places and you make them fall to ruin. God, the end that you have planned for them is destruction and ruin and you will bring them to that slippery place where they will fall into eternity face to face with God. And the sinner will meet the holy God at the judgment seat of God. And God said, that's my plan for them. They're not getting away with what they're doing. They may be arrogant and prideful and And no, my favor is not on them. I'm against the wicked. God is not in favor of the wicked. He's in favor of the righteous. 
And God says, my plan, however, though, is to bring retribution at the end of their lives. Now, why God's doing it that way? I have no idea. That's God. But he revealed that to this psalmist. That's not all he revealed, but let's go on. Verse, uh, the next verse says, How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. They think everything is good, but it will be in a moment they will be swept into your presence, God. And they will face you, and all the horror of your wrath will come against them. And it will be terror to them. So that's what he's revealed. And then he says in the next verse, verse 20, he says, like a dream when one awakes. They, the wicked live in this dream world. It's a fantasy world. It's like everything there is on TV is, is a fantasy world. You know, it just doesn't, this doesn't exist totally that way. And, and the, the wicked who get along and are arrogant and prideful and everything is going well, it's just, a, it's a dream. It's a dream and one day there will be an awakening for them. And he says, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. They don't really exist. God despises them. When God acts, he acts with a disposition of despising. And then he says in the next verse, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, his soul was so under stress and he was so embittered Bittered. It pricked his heart that he was aching in his heart. And he says, I, next verse, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. <laughs> Talk about a truthful, a truthful passage, a, a truthful psalm. He said, he said, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like an animal toward you, God. That's my attitude. That's how I was thinking about you. How I was acting toward you, God. I was like some animal. And I was brutish and fierce. And I was ignorant. And I didn't know what I was doing in my communication with you. In my attitude toward you, Lord. He said I was like a beast toward you. Or like a beast in your sight. And this is what I like. Grace. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. And this comes, here comes grace. He says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold, you hold my right hand. So here's a guy. He's slipping off the slope of faith. He's about ready to cave in doubt and mistrust and distrust and failure to trust God in unbelief and he's brutish and animal-like toward God 
He's, he, he's, he's envious of the wicked. He wants to be like them. He's that low. And he says, nevertheless, God, you are close to me and you never let me go. You know what? God is not taken back by our doubts. He's not struggling over our doubts. If we are a believer, we are going to have doubts. We don't know why some things happen. We don't know why the providence of God is sometimes very dark. We don't know why we can't see tomorrow any light happening. We don't know why those things happen. Many, many things we don't know why happen. I look back and I say, man, alive, I can't understand why this happened. And I still don't know why it happened. Some things happened because of my stupidity. But other things you just don't understand. And he was so low and so brutish and arrogant towards God, and yet he said, you never let me go, God. You held on to me. What a God. (laughs) What a God that is. That when we struggle in our lives, and we're all going to struggle, we're all going to have whys. We're all going to have whys. If we don't have whys, I don't know what's wrong. God's not struggling with that. We are struggling with that, but he's holding us. He's fir- you know, no wonder the Apostle Paul said, he who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. No wonder Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Never is an important word in that sentence. <laughs> God hadn't turned away from this psalmist. He hadn't forgotten about him. He hadn't thrown him under the bus. He hadn't done any of that. When he was in the sanctuary of God, he had clarity on the end of the wicked, that God wasn't asleep. And he had clarity that God was a God who held on to him through all of this struggle that he was having and wasn't letting go of him. What a God. Verse 24, he says, You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Is that confidence or not? He comes into the sanctuary, into the presence of God, falls on his face before God. He lays it all on the table. Nothing is left out. He even told God that he was brutish as an animal toward him. God, he realized God had had held on to him and wasn't letting go of him. And he says, you know, I also learned that God is going to guide my steps and that's what I want. And he's going to guide me and he's going to receive me into glory. Wow. Wow. After all that, Lord, you're going to receive him into glory? After he talked to you like that, God? After he thought about you like that, God? After he wondered whether you really knew everything or not? Are you really going to receive him into glory? That's what he says. Just like all of us who are sinners, saved by grace, are going to be received into glory (laughs) and all because of that 
all because of the one who died on that cross, Jesus, and took all of my sin so I could stand before a holy God wrapped in the asbestos righteousness of Christ. Not in my own, because that's filthy, but in his righteousness. And have communion with the living and holy God. He says then in verse 25, this is a, this is a conclusion also. Whom, in I in he- whom have I in heaven but you? Lord, my relatives died. I know they're in heaven with you, but they're not going to be able to handle this problem. And they're not going to be the ones who keep me in your grace to get to heaven. God, it's only you in heaven. You're the only one I have in heaven. And then he says, And there is nothing on the earth that I desire besides you. He came out of the sanctuary with all of that understanding of God and God's workings and how God's dealings were with the wicked and with him. He comes out of there and he says, there is nothing on this planet that I desire, God, but you. I don't want what they have now. I'm not envious of how healthy they are now. They can have that camel. For all I give a rip, I'll take my old, my old one. <laughs> all I care, God, is about you. That's my desire. A change of heart came from the presence of God. A change of thinking and understanding and perspective came from being in the presence of God. I told the congregation earlier, I had an assignment once. I was in, we were in Germany for four years and I wanted to stay in Germany. And um, I had an opportunity to move to become a hospital chaplain there. I didn't even have to physically move, so it's, it's a no-cost move to the army. Was, you know, so it got approved all the way up through the European Command. It went to the Pentagon and they said, no, you are coming back to the States and you're going to such and such a place. So not only did I not want to come back, I didn't want to go to where they sent me. I did not want to go there. And I did not find out till about three years later why we were in the States and not still in Germany. And it was because all of our parents, Helga's father had died, but Helga's mother and my mother and father all died within six months. And through all of that, we brought her mom to our house for under hospice, and through all of that, if we would have been living in Europe, it would have been a mess, bigger mess than it was. But God knew all that. I was blind as a bat. I could not see any of that. And I was, I was rankering towards him. <laughs> I was angry about that move. I was brutish. <laughs> and God 
never stopped loving me and never stopped caring. All right, let's go on. He says, whom, he, whom, have I ha- whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He is my portion. He is what I want now. He is what I want forever. He is the strength of my heart. When my heart fails, I go to God for strength, and he becomes the strength of my heart so that I don't slip over the edge completely because he's holding me. And then he says in verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. He goes back to what he learned in the sanctuary. There will be a reckoning at the day of judgment. But 28 says, But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your great works. He didn't want to tell anybody about his doubts for fear that they would struggle and he would be the cause of it. But now that he understands some of how God is working and understands that God is keeping him and holding him and that he wants God at his portion, now he wants to tell everybody about the ways of God, who God is and how God is working in this world. God is working in our world, not just in the end of the wicked. God is working in our world in a thousand different ways that we don't have any understanding about and may not have any understanding about ever on this side of eternity. We may never know most of the way God is working. But we do know this. God wants us to proclaim who he is and proclaim his works that we do know about through the truth of his word. And he wants us to proclaim the great work in Christ that he has done on our behalf. We know that. And when our hearts are right, that's our desire. And that's who we want to be. Okay, I want to read you this hymn. William Cooper says, the first verse, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea, and he rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs, and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. That's what the psalmist was doing. 
judging the Lord by feeble sense. He says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind, and I love this part. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. The providence is dark for us. But from God's side, he's building and working and smiling and knowing what he's doing. And then he goes, this is the fifth verse. He says, regarding God, his purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to error, to err. That's what the psalmist was doing. He, was, he had an error in his thinking about who God is. He was blind to the movement and activity of God. He says, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. He scanned the work of God and said, what's going on here? But then he says, God is his, God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Let's pray.